the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. How's it going, Lindsay? I'm pretty cold, actually. I mean, I know that it's that time of year, February. It's to be expected. Every time it rolls around, though, I, you know, I'm waiting for it to be over. Yeah, you know, it's it's a new year, and normally we're big on themes here, and generally we would go for something like we have done in the past with like wintry movies the like thing. The Thing or Fargo like we've done. And um, is it because there's a lack of winter movies that we had to choose from or <laughs> do we just want to try something different? Maybe a little bit of both. But so. uh, we uh, chose Girl Interrupted, which does have, I think, a wintry vibe to it. It was filmed in the winter. It was filmed in the winter. And it's also a movie too. We're looking at the new year and we do this every year try to find a few movies that we feel are really good that seem like they've been forgotten. There's a lot of movies that have been forgotten and you watch them and you're like, I understand. But this one, (laughs) just it's a movie that I never hear anybody bring up. I never really see much written about it. And I hadn't seen it in a long time. On these last few rewatches, I've really grown to love this film and there's a lot to talk about uh, with this movie. You know, I do feel like it is a shame that this movie feels like it's been forgotten. When it came out, I was just so excited about the cast of this film. And that's going to be one topic that we explore in great depth. But a movie like this truly does deserve another go around. And when I watched it 20 years ago, hits completely different than what it does now. Back then, like I said, I was thinking about the cast. I Watching it now, there's so much more that's involved in this story. And I can't wait for us to get into it. Yeah, we'll get into uh, the making of the movie, how the transition from uh, book to uh, screenplay went, and James Mangold's involvement uh, coming on as the writer-director. I'm sure we'll hit upon the vibe, overall vibe of the movie, and I hope we get into some of our memorable scenes. I bet those will be worked in there somewhere. Of course, the score, and I would like to kind of theorize why we think the reception was the way it was when it came out, and why we feel 20 years later, why it deserves another rewatch, and why it feels a little forgotten. Well, after our Girl Interrupted talk, we'll get into our picks of the week. Lindsay, what was your pick this week? My pick was from 1990, starring Winona Ryder, and that was Mermaids. I really want to rewatch that. It's been so long, but I think that's a really great pick. I needed something a little bit lighter this go-around just because where I am in life right now. And not that Girl Interrupted hit me in a really heavy way, But I think I personally needed it and feeling like, you know, this is a little bit of a therapeutic episode. Mermaids was a nice cherry on top. What about you, Justin? What was your pick? You know, connecting it via cast, there was just so many directions to go in. Mm -hmm. But I landed on uh, not using connecting by cast, but by director. And that's uh, James Mangold's um, Identity, early 2000s movie. Um, mainly, uh, I was flipping through Netflix and I saw that it was on there and realized I hadn't <laughs> watched it in forever. And I was like, oh, it's James Mangold movie. And so that's my pick. 
as a Clea Duvall fan for years and years and years, when Identity came out, I was so happy for her. I'm like, yes, this is going to be a giant movie, and I'm so happy that she's in it. And I truly do love Identity. I think it's a great movie. Even though I just said I didn't connect it via actor, but she's in both yeah. movies. But That's what's, you know, you went with director, I went with actor. That's It's where our brains lie right. with yeah. this. Yeah. Of course, I'm. if there's ever a Clea Duvall involvement, I'm going to make it. So yeah. that's really what that's about. Well, as always, we'll get into our Murray moment after our picks of the week. But before we get into that first clip from Girl Interrupted, um, and I got to say, a lot of times with these movies, when we were doing a lot of horror movies for a while, mm-hmm. it was hard doing clips. You know, this one is actually a movie where there's like so much dialogue. Yeah. I find that it's much easier to find a clip that I can use. Yeah. Those clips from Evil Dead, I kind of yeah. crack up listening to that episode now. Yeah. Um, but before we get into that clip, Lindsay, can you give us just a brief synopsis, your interpretation of what this movie's about? Well, set in the turbulent world of the late 1960s, this inspired by a true story is based on future writer Susanna Kaysen's book of the same name about her stint in a mental institution. Instead of a story about a type of incarceration, Kaysen's story focuses on her relationships with fellow patients and her experience analyzing her own mental health. In some ways, for Susanna, being institutionalized creates a sense of family, of bonding, of finally being seen for who she is. However, one domineering, kind of scary, diagnosed sociopathic patient who reigns queen of the women's ward and who can seduce anyone into her way of thinking has a bit of an influence on Susanna. In this version of Kaysen's story, Susanna must dive into the darker depths before she can emerge to find her inner strength. In essence, it's a very simple story, but there's so much going on with the characters in this. It is truly a character-driven movie. Well, let's go to a clip, and we'll come back. We'll talk about Girl Interrupted. Let's do it. Am I in trouble for kissing an orderly or giving my boyfriend a blowjob? Melvin says you have some very interesting theories about your illness. You believe there is a mystical undertow in life? quicksands of shadows. Yeah, and another one of my theories is that you people don't know what you're doing. Still, you acknowledge there is a problem coping with this quicksand. You know, I have a problem coping with this hospital. I want to leave. I can't do that. I signed myself in. I should be able to sign myself out. You signed yourself into our care. We decide when you leave. You're not ready for it, Susanna. Your progress has plateaued. Does that disappoint you? I'm ambivalent. In fact, that's my new favorite word. Do you know what that means, ambivalence? I don't care. If it's your favorite word, I would have thought you would. It means I don't care. That's what it means. On the contrary, Susanna. Ambivalence suggests strong feelings. In opposition, the prefix, as in ambidextrous, means both. The rest of it, in Latin, means vigor. The word suggests that you are torn between two opposing courses of action. Will I stay or will I go? Am I sane or am I crazy? Those aren't courses of action. They can be, dear, for some. Well, then, it's the wrong word. No, I think it's perfect. Quis hic locus quae regia, quae mundis plaga. What world is this? 
What kingdom? What shores of what worlds? It's a very big question you're faced with, Susanna. The choice of your life. How much will you indulge in your flaws? What are your flaws? Are they flaws? If you embrace them, will you commit yourself to hospital for life? Big questions, big decisions. Not surprising you profess carelessness about them. So where this movie begins is from the mind and the experiences of Susanna Kaysen. She um, was an established writer. She had done one novel and had uh, a memoir published in the early 90s. But this is the published work that I think she's most known for, something that could be adapted into a movie. I think uh, doing memoirs into movie adaptations can be pretty tricky because, you, you know, you're solely, it's the, the author's voice, um, their feelings, and that's hard to portray on film, especially without having a full narration, which Girl Interrupted the movie has a little bit of a narration. It's not a ton. I don't think it's like an annoying way, but it's it's present and it's in the voice of Winona Ryder. This was a movie that for years was in development because they couldn't quite get the script right. It was very hard to adapt such a personal story with like so much of the author's experience and, and their own thoughts on what's happening to them versus the actions that take place in the movie. And so there were certainly a lot of changes that were made to give the movie better structure, but it didn't necessarily start out that way. And one person who saw potential in Girl Interrupted becoming a movie was producer Douglas Wick. Um, he'd been responsible for producing movies like Working Girl, Wolf, and The Craft. So Wick options this book, and then the next natural step is to find someone to do the screenplay. Another person who'd taken some interest in this is actor Winona Ryder. Her dad gave her a copy of this book, and she immediately wanted to buy the rights. She fell in love with this novel and felt like she had a personal connection to it. As she's not shy of talking about, when she was around 20 years old, she was just overworked and overtired and suffered from insomnia, depression, anxiety, exhaustion, and checked herself into a facility where she wanted to address a lot of those issues. And not to say that she had a similar experience to Susanna Kaysen, but Girl Interrupted spoke to her. So obviously she's not able to buy the rights to this book because Douglas Wick has already optioned it. But she does get in contact with him and becomes a very vigorous partner, is what Wick described it as in the creation process. She just jumps aboard and wants to be a part of it as producer and hopefully star is what she's gunning for is to play Susanna Kaysen. But it wasn't something that was easy that once a big name like Winona Ryder jumps on board that this movie's going to be greenlit. It was in development for quite a little while at Columbia Pictures. It went through something like three drafts and the studio was just frustrated because every script that came out was following the nonlinear process of Kaysen's book and it just wasn't translating very well. So with no script, the studio was frustrated and wasn't comfortable throwing money at this movie to greenlight it. So with Wick's belief in this movie going to be made and writer's tenacity, 
This movie was going to be made one way or another. And during this process of trying to find the proper screenwriter, trying to find a director, Winona Ryder sees James Mangold's 1995 film Heavy and immediately feels like, this is the vibe and feel that I would love for Girl Interrupted. I've got to get in touch with this guy. So she tries to set up a meeting, which is pretty impossible for Mangold at the time, who is in the middle of filming Copland. But only a few days later, the movie does wrap, and Mangold, you know, you've got Winona Ryder calling you? Yeah, he's going to call her back. They do have a meeting, and he listens to Ryder's proposal and says, this looks like this is going to be a tough adaptation, but I am excited about the challenge about trying to do this. He said something to her like, you're going to have to leave the book behind in some places in order to find the meaning and feel behind the book. And this leads us into how the book is certainly different from how the movie ended up, but does encompass the overall feel of everything that Susanna Kaysen had in her 1993 book. And I really kind of admire uh, James Mangold here. I mean, he he had only done one movie, uh, Heavy, which is a really great movie. I've, I have seen it. It's a very strong debut film. But then to go from Copland, which you're shooting, is just like 100% testosterone it's like this <laughs> yeah. cast of like all these well-known male actors and then while you're filming that say you know what i'm going to deep dive into a, a story about women in the 60s in a mental institution <laughs> and some directors you know they have a strong suit and they follow that you know they they stick to similar kinds of movies and james mangold has when you look at his filmography it's kind of all over the place and you know he doesn't seem like a director who's like scared to take chances. And this is early in his career. You know, it's easy to make missteps. He wasn't quite like the Hollywood director that he is today. I don't know. I think it's an interesting, uh, for your third film, Girl Interrupted, you know, which really in some ways I think was his first like real successful film because Copland, though, uh, really had some strong buzz going behind it. It wasn't really the movie that made him, you know. That's very true. I enjoy Copland. There are some things that don't necessarily work for me plot-wise, but I, I like the movie overall. I really enjoy Heavy. That movie is it's one of those that uh, I don't want to pop on on a Sunday afternoon all the time, but I really do enjoy that film. But for this adaptation for Girl Interrupted, Mangold certainly did change some things about it. He didn't want to betray the book. On the contrary, he wanted to reinforce a lot of the themes explored in Kaysen's novel, like friendship and growing up and what is crazy, what's not crazy. But the biggest thing in that novel was that it's from Susanna Kaysen's experience, her memories, her observations. It wasn't necessarily a philosophy about, you know, what it takes to get better from whatever your condition is. It was about her experience of the people that she was in the institution with. And for something that ends up being such a conversational drama that is this movie, you have to show the conflict versus just tell about it. And that has to also be visually interesting. So this was a challenge for Mangold, and I think anyone that attempts to do a movie like this, and especially a film, not only a period drama, but also a film that's going to have pretty much an all-female cast. One thing that he wanted to stay away from was what he thought audiences would expect, which is a chick flick, something that was going to be soft at some points or, you know, have something that was an easy ending. Uh, I remember him saying something about female bonding was a big thing at that point in film and in storytelling, and he didn't want it to be something that a mainstream audience would 
throw away. Because unfortunately, in this world, talking about your feelings, if you're a woman or talking about anything that is, a, for lack of a better word, crazy, and you're a woman, that is, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to hear that. But if, you know, you're crazy and you're a man, yeah, that movie will totally fly. And evidently, he went a little wild in writing the screenplay with some conflicts. And his then-wife, producer Kathy Conrad, um, she was a producer on this film too, kind of uh, helped cull some of his ideas and keep him a little bit grounded, which is going to be very helpful when you can get lost in material and when you, in some ways, embellish upon what happened and invent things that, that didn't happen in the original story. I also want to add that while... Mangold was the main screenwriter. There was also Lisa Loomer and Anna Phelan, who I believe worked on it before Mangold came aboard. And then he kind of took over as they went on to other projects. And Mangold's main goal ultimately was to give structure to an unstructured story. And, you know, like you were saying, Lindsay, embellishing things. And that's something that uh, I think um, you can argue is a bad thing. But I think overall what Mangold does here is he finds the interesting parts of someone's life. And then he added moments that, you know, pull things together. And, you know, if you're reading the book and then you watch a movie and you're like, wait a minute, that never happened or this didn't happen or she didn't, you know, sneak out of the, the ward at night. Yeah, there's going to be some inconsistencies that are probably going to rub you the wrong way. But Mangold's goal was to make a movie not just for people who read the book, for people who don't know anything about the story, don't know anything about Susanna Kaysen, and to make a very entertaining movie that works, that has beats, that has a good story, and again, structure to the characters and structure to the story. And so he first started by working backwards. You know, he had this scene towards the end of the movie where Winona Ryder and uh, Angelina Jolie are at odds and they're, you know, it's kind of a crazy moment. And we see a flash of that in the very beginning of the movie, just a flash. We're not really given any information on, you know, what's going on. Um, but then we come back to that scene later. But there's a hint of something to come. There's a hint of some sort of intensity that's going to happen. And as he worked backwards, you know, he was like, how do I get to that point in the story? How do I get to that point where, the, you know, the wheels come off? That way, you're constantly pushing the plot forward. I love a rambling movie as much as the next person. There's some movies that I that don't have structure to them that, that I love a lot of seventies movies. You're spending time with these characters and it's kind of rambly and there's not much of a plot. I could see how this movie could be that. Um, but because it's so confined to this one location that could probably get old and you could probably not learn, give each character the amount of time that they need. And I love that, you know, he takes this sort of memoir, you know, these thoughts of the, the, the time that Susanna spent in a mental institution and weaved a story around it and had them leave the facilities, um, had them uh, interact with a character, like have a couple of scenes that are pretty heart-wrenching um, that didn't take place in real life that weren't in the book, but that uh, moves the story and also makes you care about not just Winona writer's character, but the other characters in the movie in that Though this movie is presented the same way as a book where this is Winona Ryder's interpretation of the events that happen and her reflecting on something that happened 
in her past, you know, it's written as, as past tense. A lot of times the moments still feel very present in the movie. And one really effective scene that was only mentioned in Kaysen's book is the death of the Daisy character played by Brittany Murphy. That scene is the most powerful in the entire film for me. And it's also crazy to think that it was one of the first scenes that they shot in the first week of production. Mangold really wanted Brittany Murphy for the role, and um, she was on a schedule crunch, so they had to shoot it right away. For a scene that wasn't necessarily in the book, you know, like Susanna didn't leave, like her and Lisa never, like, left the premises and escaped and then like went on the road. And that is the pivotal point in the movie where you see the change in Winona Ryder, where she really has to realize that, you know, she has issues, but, you know, she sees the difference between what she's going through and someone like Lisa who going into a, a world of self-destruction and not having compassion for people or empathy for people and is, is kind of shut off. And, that scene is like a really good representation of the protagonist antagonist. Um, you know, we see how they react to the scene and it's kind of chilling. Uh, it's the first time, you know, we see the Angelina Jolie character really show her sociopathic side and is just sort of like, eh, what an idiot. And then like robs the money off of a, a hanging Brittany Murphy who's like just, you know, recently killed herself in, you know, Winona's reaction, which is, what a normal person would react, which is like they're like ultimately freaked out and then I'm going to call 911. And um, yeah, to think that was the first scene that they filmed is kind of wild. And it's also a really good example of Mangold embellishing the story a bit because in Kaysen's novel, Daisy's death is just announced to her friends that are still in the institution. And Daisy in the novel, she comes and goes from the institution. In the film, she leaves has this apartment. That's where Lisa and Susanna flee to in hopes of getting some help. But Mangold's idea to embellish this scene and show us Daisy's death not only helps us understand more about Lisa and more about Susanna, and it's also the first time that we truly see the pain that Daisy has, what is underneath everything that she's been hiding. And it's all through this extrapolation of these character traits uh, that happen in this scene. So it's continuing the vibe of Kaysen's entire novel, but showing us instead of just telling us what happened. And another thing Mangold does as a director, which I think is a fine line to walk when you're doing a period piece, is how you approach that period piece. And it's fascinating, some of the movies that we, we've we talked about, and just when I watch a movie that takes place in the 60s but was shot in the 90s, I think we talked about that during the uh, I Shot Andy Warhol episode where some movies definitely look like period piece that takes place in the 60s that was shot in the 90s. I think Forrest Gump is a good example. Yeah. Um, you know, and a few other movies. But uh, Mangold wanted this movie to feel not over-stylized. And, he's, and he, I think, had a really great idea of, like, the best way to make a movie taking place in the 60s is let's shoot it like how they shot movies in the 60s. And that was a time period in Hollywood where directors were... Um, breaking away from the studio system and they weren't shooting on sound stages anymore. They were kind of shooting in real locations with natural light. So Mangold hired uh, cinematographer Jack Green, who pretty much shot most of Clint Eastwood's movies that he directed. 
And if anything, Clint Eastwood is known for a very um, natural look to his films. Jack Green shot Unforgiven, which I watched recently in the last uh, two or three weeks. And that's a really gorgeous looking film, but also like has a very realistic feel to it. It doesn't feel like a stylized Western. It feels like more neutral and really showing the characters' faces. I think that's one thing that Mangold does with this movie. You know, he really frames the the characters like tight, you know, really showing expression, really hanging on characters, doing slow push-ins, ways to let scenes um, kind of breathe a little bit. There's not so much cutting. There's a lot of conversations that happen in this movie. And we're actually able to see the actors' expressions. And there's quite a few characters in this movie and even though we have two central characters, the Winona Ryder character and Angelina Jolie, um, Mangold does allow time to linger on some of these characters so that we get their essence, we get a little bit of what they're about, so that we don't feel like there's just a bunch of background actors in, in each scene. And, you know, you really get to know the feel of the place. Um, I think shooting in a real location, a real mental facility um, that was no longer in use, using a lot of natural lighting, kind of breaks away from this ideal or this scene that we've seen in other mental institution movies that are generally like stylized and dark and they use that like medical lighting and things are very harsh. There's a lot of beauty to this movie. I'm pretty sure that the institution that they used in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, it was still in use, but that particular wing, like they still had electricity, like that part okay, wasn't okay. being All used, right. but that it was still pretty much like, and and to have um, such an active, you know, vibe still around you, that had to affect the cast, along with using a real institution to help create this authentic feel for the film, Mangold also wanted to employ the visual elements of the film to stay true to the book. Like the book, um, like I said before, it's non-linear and it blends kind of the past and present together. It's a lot of dazed memories from Kaysen. But Mangold takes this and not only uses flashbacks, but this disorienting way of blending Susanna's past with her current situation. In the beginning of the film, He's able to take what's happened to Susanna and blend it into where we're going to end up, which is the institution. That's the movie. That's that's where we're heading. And he cuts out a lot of that exposition that would normally be in a movie, the lead up to when we get to the place. He's blending it all in here. And these flashbacks are done through matching cuts, which I really love. Um, so, for instance, Susanna's in one scene and she's talking to the admittance nurse about why you're here. It'll go back to Susanna, but now Susanna is in a high school counselor's office and she's answering the same type of question to the high school counselor. And visually, we're shown that this is kind of the same thing that's happening just at a different time in Susanna's life. And these matching cuts are very well planned out. This is something that you have to think of before you set out to film this. Splicing disconnected scenes together not only helps create chaos, but it does it in such a smooth manner. Juxtaposing past and present like this is not only a great way to blend in Susanna's history and make sure that the story stays focused on Susanna. But I also really just love the fluidity that happens in the film every time that this comes up. Uh, Justin, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I, I agree with you. The way that he does the flashbacks, I think the way he works them in, in an interesting way, um, instead of just like a hard cut yeah. into a flashback, um, works. I, I do, and it's 
mainly my own personal issues with flashbacks and movies. Generally, I want there to be like, what is the reason for this? And some of the flashback scenes, I didn't feel like we weren't learning anything necessarily new about uh, Susanna, though there is the Jared Leto character that we are given in the flashback and then he does appear in the present in in the movie timeline. So that makes sense to me. And again, flashbacks can really like hurt a movie. And I don't think that this movie relies heavily on them. And I think, you know, I agree with you. It does. They do the transitions, I think, in like a interesting and well executed way to where it doesn't take you out of the movie and it doesn't stop the story. But out of all the things in this movie of like watching it, you know, several times, it was like, to me, the only spot that seemed uh, not as necessary as everything else that was going on in the movie. I can understand that. I do think that these scenes add to the coming of age aspect because we see that, you know, she's had the teacher that's been after her and kind of in the book, the reason why she goes into the institution in the first place. But I do appreciate that Mangold tries to take this idea of jumping time and this disorienting feel of being a teenager going into an institution, just this kind of out of body experience of what happened in my past and where I am and what does this all mean? Trying to blend all of that in I mean, it is kind of an ethereal thing to try to grasp, but I do really like that he does it. I do think it helps that he's flashing back to a time that's not too far from the present. You know, we're not flashing back to her as like an eight-year-old kid every, you know, 20 minutes in the movie. We just get a little bit of her life pre-going into the institution. And what a claustrophobic vibe once we get to that institution. One thing that majorly sells this film is the cast, and I think it's time we get to that. Let's go to another clip of Girl Interrupted, and we'll come back. We'll get into that cast. Hey, Susanna. We were just reading your book. We figured since it's your last night, we'd have a little salon, a little read aloud, celebrate all the wisdom you're carrying into the world. Well, try to learn something, grow as people. We read how when you were a baby, they strapped you to a board, and how you think Georgina doesn't really want to leave and Polly never will, and that I'm criminally insane. What, what are you guys doing here? Lisa's eyes, once so magnetic, now just look empty. Lisa, that is mine. That is mine. Georgina. Georgina lies only to people who keep her here. Sometimes I think she wants to live in Oz forever. How perceptive. You better erase that thing. You better erase it! Because my father is the head of the CIA, and he could have you dead in minutes! In this world, looks are everything. Sometimes I think Polly's sweetness and purity aren't genuine at all, but a desperate attempt to make it easier for us to look at her. So nice of you to pass judgment on us now that you're pure. What the fuck are you doing, Lisa? I'm playing the villain, baby, just like you want. Try to give you everything you want. No, you don't. You wanted your file? I found you your file. You wanted out? I got you out. You needed money? I found you some! I'm fucking consistent. I told you the truth. I didn't write it down in a fucking book. I told you to your face. And I told Daisy to her face what everybody knew and wouldn't say, and she killed herself. And I played the fucking villain, just like you wanted. Why would I want that? Because it makes you the good guy, sweetie. Makes you the good guy. And you come back here, all sweetness and light, and sad and contrite, and everybody sits wringing their hands, congratulating you and all your bravery. And meanwhile, I'm blowing through guys at the bus station for the money that was in her fucking robe. 
Stop it, Lisa. She's too- Shut up, Polly! Now, assembling a dependable cast for this film is essential. This is an ensemble piece. And for a film in 1999 to have a predominantly all-female cast was pretty much a unicorn at the time. We didn't really see things like this. And every actress in Hollywood was trying out for this film. I think it was Rose McGowan who auditioned and said there just aren't meaty roles like this in Hollywood. And if there are, they usually involve you taking off your clothes in some way. And this cast is a great blend of veteran actors, as well as what co-star Whoopi Goldberg said, what felt like the next crop of up-and-coming female actors. Of course, leading off, I think we have to start, obviously, with whose story this is, and that being Winona Ryder. There's certain characters that feel lost or don't fit in or are trying to find themselves. She's really good at expressing the emotions of those characters. And it's funny. It's like this is one of her most mature roles, but like she actually is playing younger than she had yeah. in like the last previous five years or whatever. Yeah. I think she's supposed to be 18 in this movie and she's 27 in real life. And I don't know if I really sat down and thought about it like I would buy her as an 18 year old, but I think it works well enough for a Hollywood movie standard anyway. Because sometimes, you know, the when they're doing especially period pieces, you know, we're, we see someone like not really age throughout the course of like 10 years or whatever. That's the truth. It was maybe the third rewatch of this, and it was a, one of her dramatic scenes, and it hit me that when I look at her in this film, I don't see Winona Ryder from Heathers. I don't see her from Beetlejuice, all of these iconic roles. She really is just perfect for this part, and maybe you know that has something to do with her zest for wanting to make this book come to life, or real-life parallels, whatever it may be. But James Mangold said... She never got lost in the role. She was very focused and pretty much the glue that held everything together, just her love for this script and Susanna's story. I don't think there are very many scenes, if any, that don't involve her in some way or another. Winona Ryder is constantly on screen, and I never get tired of seeing her and her performance in this. I know that this is her story and that many people feel that Angelina Jolie kind of takes over, steals the film a little bit. Not for me. I get why someone would say that because Jolie is over the top and very extreme. But for me, Winona Ryder is so strong in this film and I can't get enough of her. The other thing about Winona Ryder is her voice. Uh, I think it can always be difficult in having a, someone who's going to you know, play the lead role, but then they also have to do some narration. Someone can be a really good actor, but not always have the right voice to do narration. And I mm -hmm. think she has like a distinct and interesting enough voice that sounds like she's just not reading something into a microphone. Like it's because I think that especially for like a memoir type narration, and we've talked about this in other episodes with narration, um, how it can not ruin a movie, but it can kind of take you out because you're like, eh, do we need all this like talking? Yeah. It's not really made that well. And she captures the voice of Susanna Kaysen. It, yeah, it does sound like Winona Ryder speaking, but she gives little inflections that I, I think, you know, you can hear the emotion in her voice and, and, carry, and it carries through through the movie. And finally, uh, one like little thing that Winona Ryder does in several movies that I always appreciate is when she does have the kind of breakdown where she like lays it out to somebody, like tells them the truth, you know, or like kind of calls somebody out. She has this way of doing it to where it seems like, you know, she's very angry, but very sincere and very clear at the same time. 
Oh, when she calls out Lisa in the end, man, that is biting. And it's the first time that she really, really lashes out for real. That's Susanna lashing out, not Susanna trying to emulate what she thinks Lisa would do. Another thing that I hadn't really noticed about her performance, and and it's completely true, but Mangold said that he's always thought of her as like a, a perfect silent movie actress because of how she communicates with her eyes. And he's completely right. I had never noticed that before in, until this role, but she really, really does. There's such a elegance and charm about her in general, but the way that she communicates feelings through her eyes. I know you have a thing for eyes. <laughs> no, Winona Ryder is really incredible in this film. From the 18-year-old that we see her start out being and then the emergence into the adult that she becomes uh, leaving the institution. And speaking of that end scene where Winona Ryder calls out Angelina Jolie's character, Angelina Jolie really giving an award-winning performance for real. I think there's no question that this is a a career-making movie. And she's written in a way that is supposed to be the character that, you know, the camera gravitates toward and, you know, everybody's mesmerized by, really does get you to feel for her and be captivated by her but then sort of flip the script and tonally change and have you feel like, God, what a mean-spirited, like, controlling person. But even throughout the movie, you know, as I rewatched it more and more, I was like, man, she's kind of mean through this whole movie, but they set her up as being, like, this kind of cool, dominating personality, but someone that people, you know, it's exciting when she comes around because you never know what she's going to do. And, you know, she is kind of funny and charismatic. You know, I think we're just used to seeing movies where it's all spelled out for us in the beginning. You know, you either like like a person or you dislike the character and there's really no change. I mean, occasionally we have anti-heroes and anti-villains, but Lisa is a very complicated character. And the fact that we find out, you know, early on in the film, they've diagnosed her as a sociopath, it kind of makes more sense. But when you're first watching it, you don't expect her to um, be so ice cold as she is um, during the Brittany Murphy suicide scene that we talk about. And also kind of the scenes too, where she comes in, her first entrance into the movie is uh, lashing out at Winona Ryder and like coming in and screaming and people are crying. And later on, Winona Ryder almost comes to like look up to her and like wish she had that strength to like walk around and, and not worry about what people think. And their relationship is pretty interesting. I think it's, you know, a key element of what makes this movie uh, work and what makes this movie entertaining because they do form this friendship and it's a very short lasting, but um, it takes up a good portion of the the middle of the movie. Angelina Jolie is such a presence in the movie, even though she's not the main character at times. Like I forget that it's Winona Ryder or Susanna Kaysen's movie. I'm like focused on Lisa and like, whoa, this is a really, really great performance. It's kind of shocking to look back at seeing Angelina Jolie in this kind of role because, you know, for years and years now, she's become more and more of like considered, I think, like an action type star, not so much like this, you know, very uh, dramatic performance. And while her performance is incredible, and like you said, yeah, she won an Academy Award for this, um, real Susanna Kaysen said she thought it was a little over the top um, as compared to the real Lisa, but for the purposes of a movie, I mean, it, it's incredible. That's that's what you want 
in in something like this. You need that character to be almost larger than life. Lisa is supposed to control the room. She's queen of that ward. And that's what you need for this role. And I always thought that Jolie got her good foot in on a character like this with the year before with Gia. Um, not to say that Gia Karanji was a sociopath, but the manicness of like the extreme highs and extreme lows, I think that set her up to be a shoe in for this role. And it was a role that Winona Ryder wanted her for. Of course, she had to go through the you know process that everybody else does, but Ryder really thought that she would be incredible for this role and thought that they would actually be pretty good pals. You know, they're both the leads in this. Of course, they're going to pal around and they they did scenes together and it really worked out. And then on set, um, because I kind of got to give it to Angelina Jolie for this because of her character, because of Lisa being as extreme and confrontational and really mean spirited sometimes, even when she wasn't trying to be mean, she just was to all the other patients, she kind of kept her distance from everyone. And I read some like Hollywood gossip stuff that said she didn't get along with people on the set of Girl Interrupted. It wasn't that. It was that she wanted to stay in her character and kind of kept a distance from everybody to keep up that truth of how she perceived Lisa. And that's a smart move. I mean, you can call it method acting, you can call it whatever you want, but she was just being pretty smart about it. I think that's great. Uh, so this is going to sound kind of weird, but the the last screening of this movie I watched, Angelina Jolie kind of reminds me of like Judd Nelson in Breakfast Club, like kind of the way <laughs> she's playing this character of like, you know, kind of super mean and and uh, vile, but at the same time says some pretty funny stuff, dominate people into a corner to get what she wants. But at the same time, seems like, you know, she's entertaining the crowd as much as she's entertaining the audience that's watching the movie. And I feel like it ha- I was I was picking up some like real uh, John Bender Breakfast Club vibes from her performance in this. I hadn't thought of that, but I could see bender going after a woman like lisa for sure i could see them really being actually like a sid and nancy couple that i wouldn't want to be around actually but i could see that that working and i know we're coming off of a ghost here from our last episode it wasn't intentional to do a double Whoopi goldberg movie it was just all of a sudden we're like oh yeah Whoopi goldberg is in girl interrupted and doesn't play a huge substantial role, but is very effective in the, you know, small amount of screen time that she has. James Mangold was worried about casting Whoopi Goldberg just because uh, maybe you don't think of Whoopi Goldberg as a movie star now, you know, because she's been on doing a talk show for so many years. But like at the time, I mean, she was coming off of a string of hits in the 90s and she was a movie star and mostly known for comedy. And so. Um, but James Mangold was like, but she's also this like fantastic actor. So, you know, he was like, I want to take a chance and cast her in a smaller role, but like have it be totally dramatic. And she's really effective in this movie. And I think she also gives the movie a little bit of the nurturing and tenderness it needs because it is a pretty rough movie at times. You know, the material is pretty heavy. But I also, too, like at the same time that there's a scene where Whoopi Goldberg is like, you know, all right, I'm sick of this bullshit. Like, you <laughs> yeah. need to start, you know, we need to like find answers here you know it just can't be all about you know doing whatever you want yeah the warmth that she brings to this role is necessary we need someone to make us feel grounded and okay and in this world of chaos she's the person that 
doesn't lose her cool. Lisa can be holding a a pencil to her neck, ready to stab herself and threatening to kill herself in front of people. And she's unfazed by it. She's unfazed at patients throwing racial slurs at her. And I mean, that says a lot about the character. And it also says a lot about Whoopi Goldberg and knowing how someone, especially during the late 60s, how someone would react in that situation. I think she plays this part so coolly and perfectly. And also James Mangold, like you said, you know, he was kind of afraid to cast her because of her fan base, but he insisted on her having an afro in this movie, not only as a sign of the times, but also to non-verbally establish her political beliefs. You know, there's not very much political talk in this film. There's not very much talk about the politics of mental health care directly, but these two topics are kind of this undercurrent of things that we're supposed to observe and that we're supposed to read into about characters and kind of where they're coming from. And that's something that you might not even think about when you look at the character of Whoopi Goldberg, but you definitely get that idea with just things that are laid into the story as it goes along. And one particular moment that I really find to be genuine is uh, when Susanna is first brought to the institution and Whoopi Goldberg's giving her the tour I think that there's a pretty big trope here of any time, you know, you have one of these scenes where the character is either starting a new high school or going into an institution or going to prison or somewhere where the person, like, gives them the rundown of how things yeah. go around here. Yeah. And it's usually pretty note for note, like, the same in all the movies and kind of feels false. And this one, again, you use the word warmth, like, Whoopi Goldberg brings some warmth to this character. And when she's showing Susanna around... It's giving us our introduction into this world, and it feels much more genuine than it does in other movies where, you know, like when here's the people over here and stay away from her, she does this. And, you know, I don't feel like we're getting this like laundry list of like the the things that they have to check off, um, you know, to introduce the audience into where, you know, this character is going to be staying the next year or so. It's done in a very um, naturalistic and uh, organized way that, that, you know, I really, really like. And I think a lot of that is due to Whoopi Goldberg's um, portrayal. And her character, Valerie, also completes this triad of female characters in this um, that Mangold, he wanted there to be some vague elements of a, a typical fable and pointedly to The Wizard of Oz. Let's say Susanna is supposed to be Dorothy. Lisa is the Wicked Witch of the West. And Valerie is Glenda the Good Witch. She's the one that's guiding her. And I got to say, her guiding hand is the only thing that would keep me sane in this situation. And when she tells Susanna, basically, you're not crazy, don't drop anchor here. Like, that one gets me. Just her saying, don't drop anchor here, oof, that hits me real hard. So I'd say she kind of completes the the three leads for this film. And to round out the rest of the cast, I mean, it's just a kind of a laundry list of who's who. I mean, let's just start with Brittany Murphy. Whew. Brittany Murphy in a role that every time that she is on screen, it is a combination of her performance and the character that she's playing is just her, whatever she is afflicted with. 
whatever kind of disorder or or multiple disorders that she has, it is really something that you're never going to forget when you see the character of Daisy. And Brittany Murphy has this, I know we talked about Winona Ryder's eyes and her ability to act with her eyes, but man, Brittany Murphy does a dang good job of it here too. Just the inner pain that she feels, but like this like outward aggression but just stifling. You can tell that she's just stifled down so much in her life. Um, The way that Brittany Murphy plays the character of Daisy and her chicken obsession, eating disorder, everything that's going on with that character is uh, impossible to forget. It almost feels like a horror movie whenever (laughs) her scenes are around. It's like, I I think it would be a very chilling film of like, just uh, the Daisy character living at her house, you know, Good like Lord. that being the whole movie. I don't want to. Um, and also too, like the way that the, her apartment, everything's just like flowers and it's, you know, very pretty in. Like Lisa's it, absolute hell is what Daisy's apartment yeah, is. But not only that, it just seems like this like total opposite of how mm-hmm. she really, you know, she's like, so, you know, Daisy's so tense and seems so tightly wound and like, very very disturbed and yet like you know loves all you know she's got like a pink telephone and just the the balance of that is uh very peculiar but like totally fits and i think again um the scenes with daisy i almost feel like i'm watching a different movie just and not not in a bad way but just because she really your focus is on her you're like okay this person is much more disturbed than the last character that the Winona Ryder characters met. And so you're, you're getting to see all these different uh, personalities and worlds in which all these characters are coexisting in. And next I'd probably say is the character of Polly or as Lisa lovingly calls her torch. It's awful. Played by Elizabeth Moss, who most people nowadays probably know her best from Handmaid's Tale, uh, the TV series and Mad Men. But Elizabeth Moss is Polly the the girl who because what was it she get a rabbit it wasn't a cat it was a rabbit but she um was a it was a dog she was the dog well we don't know if that's true because uh Cleetaval said she's a pathological liar oh after, yeah that's true we don't that story that's right um yeah I guess that's true we don't know if that's true well however whatever the story is Polly's face is burned and scarred and she's forever kind of in this little girl role no matter how old she gets and that type of psychosis is the reason that we theorize that she's there we don't know much more about her character but she is very sweet in how she plays this role but one of the more tragic characters in Girl Interrupted. Yeah her character is one that you know you you feel the most sympathy for and I think um why it works when they when they all sing the song for her. Oh. Um, you know which I think is a scene that in another movie could be, could have been real cheesy but because the Polly character you like hurt for her so much mm-hmm. like the fact that they're all like you know doing something for her and you know there's little scenes that are in there that shows that she's you know captivated by music and and her love of animals you know when she gets the the cat later on in the movie elizabeth moss is great in that i i didn't realize that she'd been acting since she was like a little kid um you know i i was one of those people that didn't really come to know her until like mad men or 
Um, because it's like when I was rewatching this, I was like, whoa, Elizabeth Moss was, <laughs> you know, and you know, half of her face is like covered with prosthetics, but you can tell still, it's her. You can yeah. tell it's her, yeah. Yeah. Uh, when Susanna lets her keep the cat, <laughs> it's like the only time that Polly legitimately smiles. I think one of the most emotional parts in the movie is when they're all looking at their files and she sees the photo of her before she was burned. So many little moments in this film that are just so uh, heart-wrenching for that particular character who's in their own private moment, and Polly has quite a few of those. Yeah. Now, Georgina, played by Clea Duvall, is Susanna's pathological liar roommate, or at least she says she's a pathological liar. We think she is. No one else ever says any other diagnosis. But Clea Duvall is, I think, wonderful in anything she ever does. This role is pretty understated, but nonetheless um, effective. And I think along the same lines of kind of this hurt, sadder angle, that's also along the same lines as Polly. She's also really good at crying, which she does in a lot of her movies. And I see Mm -hmm. why it's utilized because she gives a really realistic breakdown portrayal. And the only time that we see her lash out towards the end everybody has their moment in this movie when she lashes out for a second at Susanna at the end it's really good too I guess we do know she's a pathological liar because of how she lashes out yes I take that statement back oh one more the role of Janet played by Angela Bettis this actor always wins me over in so many things she is aggressively playing a girl with an eating disorder She's got a lot of anger and tension, and she is just pissed off. Um, I love this character. I think that she plays it just perfectly. And Angela Bettis, I'm always going to go go to bat for her because of uh, a role that came after this in May. I'm waiting for my time to talk about May. I love that movie. It's a good performance in May, and this one as well. Yes. And like we've said, the supporting roles in this film are just kind of endless. I mean, we've got... Bigger names, you know, we've got Jared Leto, Vanessa Redgrave, for God's sakes, the woman's been acting her entire life, Jeffrey Tambor, Kirkwood Smith, Mary Kay Place, all of these people have been around, Joanna Kearns, come on, Growing Pains, so many big names in this film. And James Mangold has said that he felt fortunate that all these prestigious actors would come in, you know, actors that have had much bigger roles would come in and do smaller roles, shoot for a day or two. And I think it really elevates this movie. You know, there's really, when you're watching this, it it really is just like a who's who of people that you've seen in so many movies and TV shows. Oh man, we also forgot uh, Cynthia, that uh, right-hand chick of... Lisa's played by Jillian Armanente. Cynthia, I mean, I think that's who I would be if I were in Girl Interrupted, would be whatever, um, oh wait, whatever she's afflicted with. She's afflicted with the gay. That's why she's in the institution. We're in the 60s. That's when you get put in the institution when you're, when you're gay. Anyway, and one of the ways this movie seamlessly kind of blends all of these actors together all of the supporting roles from nurse john to the therapists we see to each and every character is one of my favorite things that happens in movies is the montage the art of the montage sometimes they work sometimes they don't and girl interrupted over this great and totally out of place wilco song out of place for the time period but perfectly done in this film the montage in here where we see great moments and we see kind of the building of 
a darker relationship between Lisa and Susanna. We see all of these feelings that are just perfectly encapsulated um, in this montage. It was a bold move, but I think the best move for this montage of a period piece that takes place in the 60s to not do like a bird song or like Credence Clearwater song, something that is so familiar to everybody that is so 60s, where to pick a modern song of the 90s of an album that just came out by Wilco, who wasn't really a huge band at the time. The song works so well, and I had forgotten that they used a Wilco song for that because the, the movie is, you know, it mainly consists of songs from the 60s, um, and some that are, you know, pretty big hits, but I, I really like the use of How to Fight the Loneliness uh, song in this. And it does, you know, lyrically, I think it fits the situation, but not, not so much that it's like Mickey Mousey in the situation. Yeah. It sounds like that period, like it would have come from that era. Yeah. And James Mangold heard this song when this album came out uh, during the making of this film and just kept listening to this every day that he was, or at least he says he was listening to it every day when he was going to the set and just felt like eventually um, it had to work its way in. And I love that it's the one thing that sticks out as far as the, the soundtrack goes. Everything is great 60s music, along with the beautiful score by Michael Dana. There's just a lot of thought and care that's been put into the music of this film. Not to diminish movies where everything is cut to a perfect cue. I do think that this has like a more subtle score, you know, and it's it doesn't feel like it's telling you how you should react to the scene. It's just like underlaid perfectly to enhance it a little bit, but again, not seem so manipulative with the emotion. Yeah. Dana scores certainly has uh, a romantic vibe to it and kind of lulls you into the story. And Mangold said that this group, the Glass Orchestra, was brought in for part of the, the ending of the film, and it's really that they use glass objects and uh, make these fractured noises and things that are meant to make you feel very unsettled, that this is supposed to represent, you know, the damaged psyches and childhoods and everything, um, our inner selves, you know, everything that these patients are coming from. And that was a bold move, too, was to use a group that is taking just noises and put it into the score and blend it all together. Just very thoughtfully done. So Girl Interrupted was released in 1999 in theaters. And like we said earlier, Angelina Jolie did win the Academy Award, but the movie itself um, pretty much just like broke even at the box office. And it was mixed critically. Um, Some critics found the movie to be... um, very entertaining and intense drama where a lot of critics thought that the movie, um, you know, had one note characters and was kind of ambling and didn't really go anywhere, which I kind of find surprising because, you know, the movie, again, James Mangold did make a very structured film. But anyway, you know, the movie came and went very quietly aside from the Academy Award by Jolie. Again, it's a movie that I don't hear about too often. The only thing I can think of is that, you know, it was a movie that it didn't bomb. You know, it's not really, it doesn't really have any like culty aspects to it. It just seems like one of those movies that kind of like slipped through the cracks. And I could be wrong. You know, I, I would love to know if there's all, you know, there's a ton of people out there, you're, you're listening, you're like, man, it's one of my favorite movies, or this is one I've seen like 15 times. 
uh, let us know because it seems like a mo- a good movie to revisit. And I personally probably hadn't seen it in like 12 or 15 years before we made a decision to uh, do this one for the episode. I do think that the fact that this is an all-female cast and that it handles some slightly uncomfortable subject matter in not a gingerly fashion, that it's not a soft movie. There is a definite amount of grit to this film. I think that this can be not exactly comfortable for a lot of people unless you're someone who's gone through an experience like this or unless you have found yourself in a situation where you felt lost and needed a group of people or needed a group of friends um, or struggled with mental illness. I think that this is going to be a touchstone for people that have gone through those experiences. But again, it's touching on subject matter that people, you know, don't really want to talk about. And when it involves women, then it immediately gets thrown into that place that Mangold was afraid it was going to from moment one. But this film for me hits differently as an adult than it did when I was younger. I do really love it so much more now. Predominantly, this is a coming-of-age film, and I think that in that, everyone can find something to relate to. And I don't think you just have to be a woman either. No, I totally agree. Speaking as someone who's not a woman, I feel like I could relate to quite a few things in this movie. I'm not surprised by that, Justin, and I'm very happy that you went on record. Well, we'll come back with some final thoughts on Girl Interrupted, but let's get into our picks of the week. Lindsay, tell me about Mermaids. There are a lot of movies one could choose in connection with Girl Interrupted. And for this round, I needed something like Mermaids, and it had been so long, like you, Justin, and I was kind of curious to see if it still held the magic. I hoped it did. Set in 1963, Mermaids follows a single-parent family of two girls. It's suggested that whenever there's a male presence in this family, they don't stick around too long. And like Girl Interrupted, Mermaids truly depends on the strength and relatability of its characters we follow in the story. The incomparable Cher portrays Mrs. Flax, the best friend type of mom. Some would have called her fast back in the 60s. A decade later, she would have been called liberated. Now we'd call her just a single mom trying to be a responsible, straightforward parent, a woman who will always be youthful at heart, but also might not have the best instincts when it comes to bagging a man. Save for a new love interest, played by Bob Hoskins, who causes her to do some reflection that she had not planned on. Mrs. Flax frequently uproots the family at the whiff of a challenge. Running away from problems is how she's always chosen to solve them. And while this works for her, she has two kids in tow who have to endure her life choices. The eldest of two daughters is Charlotte, played by Monona Ryder. She's the heart of the film, and in her, the struggle of adolescence is front and center as she narrates her inner thoughts and contradictions, fighting her inner urges, her feelings, and horrified by her mother's openness, too. Born a Jewish girl, but she wishes she were a Christian nun. She's the puritanical outsider, but can't stop herself from being inherently curious while also unable to stifle her desires for the handsome 20-something who works just up the road from her house. Katie's the youngest of the family, played by a tiny baby-faced Christina Ricci in her debut role. The do-gooder, the innocent one, solely focused on being an Olympic swimmer one day. She possesses that carefree spirit of her mom while stifled by her older sister, the one who's acting like she's negatively affected by the world. Richie's shining moment of wearing a pumpkin on her head is a cute highlight to watch out for. I know I've spent some time describing these three leads, but the movie relies on their dynamic. The story could venture into so relatable that it feels almost mundane, but not with how these actors deliver their roles, and also that it strikes me as a unique story for the early 60s. 
Mrs. Flax and Charlotte are stark opposites, which is what drives the film. Mom is forever in crisis, but has adapted to life. Charlotte's battling herself, double-screwed in a way because she is her mother at her core, but is also a witness to her mother's behavior and wanting to act out against it. Justin, you and I have talked about period films sometimes looking like they're more from the decade in which they were filmed versus when they're supposed to occur. Girl Interrupted's decade believability may flow a little better, but Mermaids has the look of the 60s down cold, only wavering a little into 80s territory at times, but I never feel pulled out of the movie's reality. This is an atypical family, and the movie's emotional maturity reminds me of My Girl with a little bit of Slums of Beverly Hills thrown in. There's a segment wherein President Kennedy's assassination is worked into the plot of the movie, and I know for some that that can feel contrived, but the more that I've watched this movie and seen the scene, I make the connection to the writer of the story and how they experienced it, and you've got to remember what profound effects events like this have had on folks. My mom remembers exactly where she was when Kennedy was murdered, and she was probably the age of Charlotte in the movie. I guess that's why I noticed it so much more. People huddled around TVs and radios, a sense of the floor being ripped out from underneath you. And that by itself is always how Charlotte feels every time her mom uproots her family. And please take note of how this story, like Steel Magnolias does, uses holidays to keep track of time. Oh gosh, and the soundtrack. Classic cherry-picked hits which keep you cemented in the vibe of the decade. Maybe this is a fish-out-of-water story. Maybe that's why it's called Mermaids. But the family is always forced into a new living situation in which they must adapt. Maybe it's little Katie's dedication to swimming, which also foreshadows one of the movie's heart-skipping-a-beat moments. Or maybe it's Cher dressing up as a mermaid for a New Year's scene. Or her boyfriend trying to bond with the Flax girls while painting an undersea motif in a bedroom for them. It's probably all of the above why this movie is called Mermaids. But this 60s family is as rare as the existence of a mermaid in real life. Mermaids is an offbeat, heartfelt blend of real-life comedy and family drama, which, when observed from the outside, can be the most heart-wrenching moments in life. Emotional evolution is at the center of this movie, and the three who sell it are Cher, Winona, and Christina. So if you find yourself in the mood, Mermaids really hit the spot for me. Yeah, not until you started talking about it that I realized, oh yeah, it does take place in sort of the same time period mm-hmm. yeah. in, st- in, in style. Yeah, Anytime it pops up on social media when someone posts the picture of Christina Ricci with the pumpkin on her head, yeah, it always makes me laugh. It's sometimes nice to just revisit something that's just an experience of something that's not going to leave you thinking really hard after the fact. It's just a nice family movie. I think it was like last year sometime when I was on that big share kick and I didn't, I didn't watch. Were you on a share kick? I, I was. I remember <laughs> I watched Suspect and then I watched. Uh, Silkwood. I watched, or I watched Silkwood and then yeah. I watched uh, Mask. Yeah, I and, do remember uh, that. But I didn't, I didn't squeeze mermaids into that. It was like a three night stand of share movies. She's really good in both yeah, of those movies. She's excellent. Yeah. All right, Justin, your turn. Tell me about your pick of the week. All righty. My pick of the week was James Mangold's Identity. Um, this is a movie that I feel must be so fun for a director to make a taut 90 minute noir type thriller that has a bunch of red herrings and it's a very much like a whodunit, super stylized, all takes place in one location on a rainy night. It is a really fun movie to watch. Even though this movie came out like 16 years ago, I do believe it's very much like the first time you see it. Um, it's going to hit the hardest, so I don't want to spoil too many things. In case this was a movie that you missed, I highly recommend uh, checking it out. 
the movie centers around one evening at this hotel that very much sort of has a similar vibe and tone to the Bates Motel in Psycho. There's an accident that happens. Um, slowly, all the guest um, lives become like intertwined. The movie takes a unique style in that it goes back in time. We see the present, and then we go back and we see another guest who arrives and what happened to them before they arrived at the hotel and how they got there. Some people's stories are intertwined, some aren't. But essentially what happens is people start getting picked off one by one. There seems to be a killer among them, and we don't quite know who it is. We don't know why they're doing it. Again, there's several red herrings. It's very much a fun, tight whodunit type story with quite an exciting ending that you may love or hate. I personally really enjoyed it. I think the movie kind of goes a little bit further than it needs to. But again, on first watch, um, it's fun just trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Though I did enjoy it on the second watch because once you kind of understand what's happening with everybody, um, there's a lot of little things that are that are placed in the movie that, that I missed on the first time around. Really fantastic cast. We've got John Cusack, Ray Liotta, Amanda Peet, Alfred Molina, Clea Duvall, Rebecca De Mornay, John Hawks, John C. McGinney, and Pruitt Taylor Vince, who was in James Mangold's first film, Heavy. And man, he really does a good job of playing a creepy guy. And there's also, uh, if you remember, Jake Busey, who is playing sort of like a wild man role that he did a lot in the um, early 2000s, doing a good job of chewing scenery in this movie. One thing I didn't realize until after giving this uh, revisit was that it was loosely based on a Agatha Christie novel entitled And Then There Were None, which I haven't read, but I see this movie as a very modern take on a whodunit murder type mystery. I adore this movie. It is a lot of fun. And yeah, if if not for anything else, the, the cast alone is really fun. And I'm glad that you brought up the Agatha Christie, it being based on that. For some reason, I was aware of the story in my youth. I think I knew it as 10 Little Indians, but it, yeah, it was called And Then There Were None. There are so many movies that loosely are based on that story. And it's, you know, 10 people get invited to a place their host is, I mean, kind of clue is even that a little bit, but you can find elements from that story in so many different movies that aren't even considered an adaptation of the story, but just cherry pick aspects from that story. Agatha Christie, man, what a good mystery writer. Well, those are our picks of the week, Mermaids and Identity. Both movies worth checking out. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're going to come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even show. Hey, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. you've memorized all these Murray moments for almost 90 episodes now, you've heard me bring up Billy's 1980 film, Where the Buffalo Roam. 
And when I brought it up before, it was more about how Billy warned Johnny Depp about becoming too consumed with portraying the legendary gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Because, as he told Depp, playing Hunter gets inside of you. He's unlike any other human and possibly didn't live on the same plane of existence as most people. But that Murray moment was not about the extent to which his friendship with Hunter affected Billy. Quick setup for Billy's life at the time. Saturday Night Live is massive. He's proved that he can carry a film with meatballs, but is still a second behind his two SNL brothers, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, who were both blowing up at the time, especially with the Blues Brothers characters. And originally, Where the Buffalo Roam had been thought of as a Belushi-Aykroyd vehicle, but the two bailed as soon as the Blues Brothers movie got the green light. When Belushi and Aykroyd left SNL in season four, Billy still hung on. But the summer leading up to what would become his final season, Bill spent much of that time with the unpredictable, sometimes unintelligible, but very quick-witted wild man Hunter Thompson, who Bill was to portray in Where the Buffalo Roam. And in the spirit of Girl Interrupted, this Murray moment is about the aftermath of being consumed by pure insanity and going about life as if rules don't apply. Like Susanna to Lisa, Billy began to try on the behaviors of Hunter Thompson. And coming from a guy who suggested in order for Bill to cure his insomnia to drink scotch and NyQuil at the same time to fall asleep might not be the best idea. When it was time for season five of SNL, most would have said Bill had undergone a complete personality change. After filming Where the Buffalo Roam over the summer, Bill had absorbed some of Hunter's personality. Not even as a joke, Bill was skulking around the Studio 8H halls with a long cigarette holder, dark glasses, and an attitude no one was pleased about. One writer said what many others were thinking. Billy was not Bill Murray. He was Hunter Thompson. You couldn't talk to him without talking to Hunter Thompson. And this is a quote from the book Saturday Night, A Backstage History. During that SNL season five, Hunter would show up backstage, which made a lot of people uncomfortable. One writer said that Hunter was an intelligent, fun guy, probably great on vacation, but he's absolutely the last person you want to be involved with a live comedy show. Thompson had no interest in helping anything that was going on around him and was completely unpredictable. If you watch any of the first episodes of season five compared to the previous years, Bill seemed more withdrawn and allegedly was a complete nightmare backstage, yelling at writers, saying how everything that came out was terrible, complaining about the show's hosts, the network, yelling at Lauren Michaels, which would then devolve into being irritated about TV in general and ultimately culminating into complaining about the entire world. Bill had become the shadow of Hunter Thompson. One person during this time pointed out he was, quote, doing all the things that the year before he was calling people, namely John Belushi, assholes for doing. He'd show up hours late to rehearsals and blocking sessions, threatening to quit, walking out on Friday nights and not returning until Saturday afternoon. Everyone was a target. All the people who'd been right there with him for years, building up SNL into this giant. And this was a guy who'd once told off Chevy Chase to his face because he was the new guy who'd witnessed how deeply it affected the rest of the cast who'd felt abandoned when Chase left the show. It's been theorized by friends that Hunter tapped into Billy's resentment over feeling so unsupported when he joined the cast as Chase's replacement. There were a lot of people who felt his terrible behavior was unleashed because his longtime friends, Belushi and Aykroyd, had also left the cast. And Bill's cattiness became evident during one weekend update wherein he reviewed the massive Steven Spielberg bomb 1941, starring Danny and Belushi. He ragged on the film, even misnaming the actors when speaking about them, saying that he'd told them not to leave SNL to do the movie it was going to bomb. 
And now my two old friends are going to have the most miserable Christmas of their lives, he said during the broadcast. And we all know more suicides occur during Christmas than any other time. But don't let this movie spoil your holidays. Take the kids to see meatballs instead. Many moons later, Bill would say that Hunter continued to live with him for years, but this attitude began to fade as soon as Where the Buffalo Roam was released. Billy's performance was well-praised, but critics brought the movie to its knees, so much so that Universal pulled it from distribution. As far as I could find, Billy's never really spoken to any SNL folk about the dark Hunter Thompson era, and no one ever brought it up. One friend at the time compared the situation to a friend waking up from a coma and then telling them how awful they've been. Everyone was just overjoyed to have Billy back to being himself, almost as if a positive shot of energy had been injected into him, reviving that spark that had gotten him on the show in the first place. I know this story isn't exactly Susanna Kaysen's plight with Lisa and Girl Interrupted, but the way in which she was in danger of dropping anchor at Claymore because she'd finally bonded with people and then having this enigmatic person try to bring her down to her level, it just reminded me of how Billy was in danger of drowning in the intoxicating friendship he had with Hunter. There's so many stories that branch off with this one, but this is a good place to stop. If any of you out there have Murray moments yourself or thoughts you'd like to share with me on this one, please feel free to drop us a line um, or reach out on social media. I'd love to hear any stories people have. There was a whole documentary about Jim Carrey when he did Man on the Moon, when he was trying to transform an Andy Kaufman mm-hmm. and pretty much like stayed in character, but then was kind of like a real a-hole to everybody. Yeah. And, but then sort of the similar way with uh, Where the Buffalo Roam, when the movie came out, it like was a box office bomb and like, it was just like, man, you just treated all these people terribly <laughs> yeah. to, to do a movie that then nobody saw. Yeah. It's hard to say like what happens to someone when they're really like engulfed yeah, in... It, yeah. And even with Andy Kaufman, I could completely see that happening. His personality is just as intense as Hunter Thompson. Again, these are Jim Carrey, Bill Murray, both comedians, you know, both pretty decent actors yeah. to boot. But yeah. trying to channel such a strong personality may be going a little bit too far. Yeah. Good performances in both movies by the actors, uh, whether or not um, it was worth it to, uh, you know, <laughs> in the long mess run. with a bunch of people's lives yeah. that had to work with them during that time period. But. But it is totally true. Both of their performances are great. Yeah. Well, thank you for that Murray moment. Of course. Did you have any uh, final uh, words on Girl Interrupted before we call this thing quits? One thing that stuck out to me, a real-life aspect of this film, the Brittany Murphy suicide scene, finding out that Winona Ryder, this is such a you know personal movie to her and had no problem rewatching it, after Brittany Murphy died, she said that this is one that she can't revisit after that. And that scene, I mean, we already mentioned it before, is incredibly emotionally intense. And yeah, I think if I knew Brittany Murphy too, I mean, it's hard not even knowing her and knowing that she's dead and watching yeah. that scene. So that one kind of that one kind of hurt. There's a lot of personal aspects to this movie that I think make it even more powerful. You know, I totally agree. In this movie, um, of all the movies that we've done on the podcast... Uh, this is one that, again, that I never really hear too many people talk about and that I think this is totally one of those movies that needs to be rediscovered, especially it being like um, such a well-acted ensemble piece, but then also really just good drama. You know, you don't mm-hmm. really, you know, I mean, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of drama and television now, but these days you don't really see any like really good uh, drama movies. And I think this one is worthy of... Uh, all the praise that's getting here on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm really happy that you wanted to do this one. We hope you've enjoyed our episode on Girl Interrupted. Next up, 
we uh it's like three G movies in a row. <laughs> yep. We did a uh, Ghost, Girl Interrupted, and we're about to do Godfather. Um, maybe one of the most acclaimed movies we've ever done on the on this uh, podcast. But it's the fiftieth anniversary of the Godfather, which is insane to me, even more insane. I mean, in a good positive way that, uh, most of the main cast of this movie are like still alive and they like, <laughs> yeah. Filmed the Godfather when they were in their thirties. It's pretty wild. And, uh, so much to talk about that. We've got our work cut out for us. Whew, we yeah. got to dig deep into the Godfather. So that's coming up next. Uh, something to look forward to. If you haven't already, please do follow us on social media. We're on Twitter Instagram and Facebook. We seem to be most active on Instagram. You can always find out uh, what movies we have coming up next. And if you'd like to check out old episodes, you can always find them on our YouTube channel. Please subscribe. Don't push pause podcast. We have all of our old episodes archived there as well as on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. And if you'd like to contact us for any reason whatsoever, you can reach us at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, guys. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. When you've got worries, all the noise and the hurry seems to help, I know. Downtown, just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. How can you? The lights are much brighter there You can't forget all your troubles Forget all your cares So go downtown Things will be great when you're downtown No final place for sure Downtown